0: I'm Perry. This is in plain sight. And to my right, star of all things Blaze TV, the one and only Mr. Brandon Steele. Hell yeah! We're we're finally going to wrap this up. I cannot wait to not have this man's words in my head anymore. It has been a very long month and a half of yeah. just of just reading insane people shit. I I do every time we cover David. I I sometimes I try not to think about it too much because it it makes me sad. But I do think about how many things I could have actually learned if I was yeah. reading stuff that wasn't just the ramblings of a madman.
1: Well, someone has to do the work.
0: Yeah, that's that's what I tell myself yeah. at least. Yeah, <laughs> come on. Um I, I'm not sure. David may be going live on the day we're recording this, so if that's the case, you guys will get that, I guess, maybe the next week. He keeps he keeps saying he's going to go live, and then he complains that the wind is too loud yeah, or somehow something. somehow the wind always takes out his internet. Yes, the, the notorious hurricanes of Colorado keep uh, knocking him offline.
1: He's got the most fragile internet on the planet.
0: Yeah, you but they, one of the main things you got to do, if you're a guy who makes his living being on the internet, you should probably make sure you have good internet. That's it's like, yeah, the, the thing yeah, you don't, should have,
1: don't move out in the middle of the woods where they have no Wi Fi,
0: yeah. Well, shall we? Uh, uh, chapter eight, mapping out the afterlife. Um, this I i groaned because the that last episode that was only the first 100 pages of the book. He yeah. he kind of tried to front load a lot of this stuff, and it really falls off the rails during this
1: (laughs) he's hoping you'd stop looking
0: Uh, yeah i think i think that's actually exactly it so chapter eight mapping i feel like people
1: think there's regulations to writing books
0: yeah there's absolutely no you can actually just lie Anyone can write a book and put it out. The, yeah. the, you think fucking Dutton Books cares yeah. if you're a liar, if you sell a million gobbies?
1: Yeah, publishers don't actually
0: check anything. No, no one gives a shit. All they care about is money. That's, yeah, they, they really don't actually check any veracity. <laughs> no, and uh, that that will be borne out as we get into this. We uh, We start with near-death experiences in this chapter, referred to as NDEs. Before we get into David's work, I came across a paper when I was reading about NDEs, and I think it would be helpful for people to get an idea of what they're like if they haven't experienced it. I'm assuming most people in our audience haven't had near-death experiences. I mean, yeah. Well, maybe in our audience, actually. I'm not so sure about that. Enough ODS in our audience might, uh, might balance it out. This is from a 2018 paper about neurochemical models of NDEs. Quote, After assessing the semantic similarity between 15,000 reports linked to the use of 165 psychoactive substances and 625 NDE narratives, we determined that the N-methyl-D-aspartate NMDA receptor antagonist ketamine consistently resulted in reports most similar to those associated with NDEs. Yeah,
1: I mean, I guess a K hole sounds like a near death experience. Yeah,
0: pretty much. It's, That's
1: what killed old uh, Matthew Perry.
0: Yeah, and I like uh, K
1: holed himself into oblivion.
0: Of all the ways to go, getting getting high on ketamine and then drowning in a fucking uh, jacuzzi sounds. Look,
1: he was probably out before he even hit the
0: water. Yeah, I like uh, I like that people online were trying to say like he was he was doing ketamine therapy. He was
1: doing medical ke- medicinal <laughs> th- th- ketamine. Okay, it was it was prescribed.
0: Yeah, I don't think the doctor typically tells you to do that much ketamine in a hot tub. Oh, the
1: doctor wrote take as much as you can until you black out into a pool of death.
0: Yeah, usually you wouldn't overdose a week after your last medical dose. Something tells me you might have been getting a little on the side. Yeah, I
1: think you might have just figured out you liked it.
0: All right, where uh, ketamine was followed by salvia divinorum, a plant containing a potent and selective kappa, of, uh, kappa receptor agonist and a series of serotonergic psychedelics, including the endogenous serotonin 2A receptor agonist NN dimethyltryptamine. This similarity was driven by semantic concepts related to consciousness of the self and the environment, but also by those associated with therapeutic, ceremonial, and religious aspects of drug use. Our analysis sheds light on the longstanding link between certain drugs and the experience of dying suggests that ketamine could be used as a safe and reversible experimental model for NDE phenomenology and supports the speculation that endogenous NMDA antagonists with neuroprotective properties may be released in the proximity to death. So that's uh, all that to say, if you've smoked salvia or done ketamine or DMT, that's kind of what we're talking about here. And the reason I bring that up is... Uh, anyone who's done those drugs, you probably realize that's not exactly a scientific state of mind. It's more abstract. Uh, Yes, it's more. Uh, it's more art than science. It's Hunter Biden's art. Yeah, you can uh, you can have a lot of cool experiences. I just don't think they're terribly reliable narrators when David, it comes
1: to this. David would do DMT now and the machine
0: elves would be debt collectors. <laughs> the the machine uh, IRS. Yeah, just be
1: little Jewish debt collectors.
0: So, I do want to say that near death experiences are real and there's a lot of fascinating things about them, but that's of course not good enough for David using the very credible source of near-death.com nice. which <laughs> that that link like, nice. that's a 404 error when you click on it. David makes the claim that people's spirits were able to travel great distances and bring back information and even more astounding is that, quote, some people actually appeared in front of their loved ones as ghosts, partially visible images of their former selves. They were able to have full conversations with their loved ones in ghostly form. Wow. Uh, I... Could not find any evidence for the the ghost claim there, but looking for that, I found a paper titled Truthful Paranormal Perception During Out-of-Body Experiences that include an excerpt from Mark Fox. Mark Fox was on the research committee of the Religious Experience Research Center at the University of Wales. He had this to say in 2003. Quote, this needs to be spelled out loudly and clearly. 25 years after the coining of the actual phrase near-death experience, it remains to be established beyond doubt that during such an experience, anything actually leaves the body. To date, and claims to the contrary, notwithstanding, no researcher has provided evidence for such an assertion of an acceptable standard which would put the matter beyond doubt. Additionally, the creator of the term near-death experience, Raymond Moody, quote, conceded that most cases of alleged veridical perception during NDEs were found well after the fact and were usually attested to only by the NDE-er. That's a weird way to phrase it's, that. Yeah, it's, yeah all right. it's a bit close to another word, I can't say. Uh, and perhaps a few friends. So Raymond Moody, he, he wrote a book where he coined the ta- uh, term uh, near-death experience, But when he kind of got pressed on the issue, he he did kind of concede that, like, maybe this isn't exactly the soundest of sciences. Right. I also want to point out Raymond Moody was uh, placed under an involuntary psychiatric hold in, I think, 93. That sounds about right. Because he got really into... mirror divination you know nice. like the meditation where you just stare at the mirror right, and think right. you can see the future you, you got, start tripping out yeah you got really into that so his his family threw him in the loony bin wow. <laughs> so i i don't want to hold that against the man but i am saying that is the well is he wrong Maybe maybe he's right. But uh yeah, that's that's the kind of mind that came up with this. Uh my point here isn't necessarily to discount NDEs as anyone who's experienced one or anyone who has experience with psychedelic drugs can test. These experiences can be remarkably impactful. The impact, though, is not of the supernatural variety. I think David would have been better served by analyzing why it is that these experiences are meaningful as they are, despite them only occurring within the experiencer's mind. Uh, I guess my point here is that the world already contains the potential to be crazy and magical, and you don't need to unnecessarily hype it up. Doing acid and DMT is great. I think it can meaningfully improve people's lives, but I don't believe that when I smoked DMT, I turned into a ghost and flew around that being it said it wasn't my experience that being said i do believe if you smoke enough dmt you can have that experience if that's really what you're after i
1: can see how you get to the conclusion yeah
0: yeah well that's that's kind of the i can understand the math you can kind of dmt is such a wild card i think you can kind of reach any point you want if you have it in sufficient quantities yeah that's it's uh it's a uh, all opening substance. Anyways, David continues on writes about the work of a Dr. Michael Newton, who worked as a hypnotist starting in the 1940s. Dr.
1: Fig Newton. <laughs> he invented uh, the best snack ever.
0: You know, it's probably it the last time we talked about this guy. We did the exact same <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do it every time I hear this dude's gay name. Dr. Fig Newton. Uh, there's a sentence in this section that I think proves that David is entirely unwilling to think critically. He writes, quote, Newton explains that people under hypnosis are not dreaming or hallucinating. And in this state, they are not capable of lying. As I'm sure you're all aware, that is not true. We do not have a full-proof truth serum. Imagine how different the courtroom process would be if we had a way of guaranteeing people were telling the truth. It's such a ridiculous claim that pretty much anything that comes after it should be rejected outright.
1: Yeah, our truth serums are pretty much just like, let's get this dude fucked up and see if he spills the beans. Which it does
0: sort of work but it's it's a delicate balance when it's just
1: not harry potter
0: yeah well if you want to give someone a bunch of sodium pentothal you can you can get them to kind of say whatever you want whether or not it's the truth is yeah, another story they're just high yeah really high <laughs> that's, yeah that's not exactly the most reliable mind state
1: they're not being honest they're being fucked
0: up or saying whatever they need to so you will continue to give them more of the drugs yeah <laughs> uh So from here on out, every citation in this chapter is from uh, Fig Newton's book, Journey of Souls, with the exception of a handful of other citations, which are all from the Law of One. In Journey of Souls, Newton attempts to map out the afterlife and assigns different colors to the different levels of the afterlife. Dr. Newton's body of evidence is composed of hypnosis-induced past-life regression, so let's talk about that. Uh, First hypnosis, which he uses to then guide people into past-life regression. There does seem to be some evidence that hypnosis is helpful when used for smoking cessation or something like weight loss. There's also some evidence for something like uh, pain relief. But I think that uh, hypnosis being useful in these ways is precisely the reason we can't use it for tangible evidence. People are incredibly suggestible. If the one leading the session is capable of convincing a person that they don't want to smoke anymore, is it really such a leap that they could get them to say specific things about past lives or the afterlife, especially when the person conducting the session has a vested interest in achieving a specific result? Uh, An example of what I'm talking about is past life regression, which uses techniques that overlap significantly with recovered memory therapy recovered memories is one of the biggest psychological scandals of the last 100 years portions of satanic panic can be attributed to this people also ended up being sent to jail for crimes they never committed as a result of recovered memories uh george franklin in the 1980s was sent to jail after his daughter 20 years after the fact recovered a memory of her father raping and murdering an 8-year-old girl nice that, that never happened god i would be so pissed at my nice. fucking kid <laughs> <laughs> nice. Your daughter just came out and was like, he raped and killed a kid. Yeah, I'd be mad at people believing him. Yeah, so uh, Elizabeth Luftis, a psychologist in research from UC Irvine, who actually testified against the use of recovered memories in that, uh, in that George Franklin trial, she wrote a paper in 2006 titled uh, Recovered Memories, and she talked about how false memories of abuse were implanted. This is her talking about how a priori assumptions impact memory. Quote, as most accounts of the recovered memory controversy have documented, a dramatic increase in awareness of sexual abuse began in the 1980s, accompanied by widespread media coverage of abuse and recovered memories, as well as a number of popular, popular books on the topic. This situation has essentially primed the notion of abuse, including repressed memories of abuse in the general population, and elevated awareness among therapists already acquainted with concepts of trauma and repression. Among the effects of priming particular schemas are selective attention to relevant information, biased interpretation of the relevant information, and constructive and reconstructive memory processes that generally consist of confabulation of uh, schema-consistent but false memories and distortion of memories of past events toward consistency with currently activated schemas. A patient that has been exposed to accounts of repressed abuse and with abuse fully primed in her mind— may present with a pre-existing idea that she may have been abused. Likewise, the therapist may expect a high rate of repressed abuse among patients or particular types of patients, thereby setting in motion a biased assessment process, often followed with vigorous suggestive efforts to test and verify the abuse hypothesis. So my, uh, my takeaway in all this is that people attending the past life regression therapist who has a very specific idea about the afterlife, those people had already been primed to recall information that would fit with the schema provided by Dr. Newton. That uh, that recovered memory paper also goes deeper into how this happens. And I think this next section gives a pretty good idea of what it is that I believe happens. Quote: confirmatory biases are likely to manifest in initial interview and assessment processes, possibly in both patient and therapist. A patient already consider uh, considering or convinced of abuse may offer information she perceives as relevant to abuse perhaps even arguing its significance in terms of abuse. A therapist who perceives abuse as prevalent or likely may inquire about symptoms and facts seen as diagnostic, and if the patient has already brought up the possibility of abuse rather than engage in a systematic differential diagnosis to examine and rule out alternatives, the therapist may jump directly to the conclusion that the patient in fact was abused. Such premature cognitive commitment is among common errors of clinical judgment that some clinicians warn of. So to summarize, uh, no one, much like all the other research David presents in this book, no one has ever recreated Newton's research on the seven different levels of the afterlife and the various colors that represent them. I couldn't find a specific rebuttal to his claims, But I am of the opinion that Newton achieved these results via means that are near identical to the disaster that was recovered memory therapy. Getting people who are in a suggestible state to regurgitate information that the therapist really wants to hear is not suitable evidence. Going into research with a defined outcome and working back from that desired outcome to get evidence is the opposite of good science. Uh, One last thing from this section, out-of-body experiences. David frames out-of-body experiences as the individual truly being capable of exiting their bodies to travel uh, across space and time. This would be incredibly simple to confirm, and yet no one has been able to do so. We don't have a firm understanding of exactly what's happening with an out-of-body experience because no one is really able to cause themselves to have one. From a neurological perspective, they tend to occur in individuals with epileptic epileptic seizures and migraines, as well as deficient visual, vestibular, and multisensory processing. The following is from a 2004 paper titled Out-of-Body Experiences and Their Neural Basis. Quote, Davinsky et al. described several patients with out-of-body experiences caused by circumscribed brain damage and found that lesions predominantly affected the temporal lobe. More recently, our team analyzed the lesions of several patients with out-of-body experiences and found that the temporal parietal junction was affected in all patients. These patients had epilepsy and migraine. On the basis of these findings, our team proposed a cognitive model for out-of-body experiences, proposing that they are related to a failure of integration of proprioceptive, tactile, and visual information of one's body personal space. So uh, basically what they're saying here is these experiences stem from the body not being able to properly integrate the senses. So like Mm. you're, instead of... uh, the same way our mind is kind of picking up everything in this room and integrating that they're saying, basically our mind is still picking up all the stuff, but it can't translate it. Right. Right. So as a result of that, we begin to believe we're, we're in a location that is not actually true. Okay. Astral projection falls into the same category. There is no scientific evidence that astral projection as a legitimate practice exists. Uh, I know a lot of people probably aren't going to like that. I, I said that, but, so I, I do think it's possible to induce a hallucinatory state in which one, tr- one can believe they're leaving the body, but there is no evidence that these individuals are truly exiting their earthly form to travel about the astral plane. Mm-hmm. These states can be reached with drugs like ketamine, phencyclodine, DMT, but for those of you who have d- experienced those, you probably realize why such a state is not an accurate reflection of reality. So that's, I, I guess all these experiences exist in that you can you can uh, experience something similar to what they're describing but I don't think when you have an out of body experience you're literally leaving your body or I don't think people who astral project can literally you know, go about in remote view. We'd have plenty of evidence of that if that was the case.
1: I mean yeah I feel like somebody would figure that out.
0: I mean it'd be super simple. All you'd have to do is put like a note in a different room yeah. and tell the guy go in there and read that note while you're in here. But no one's ever done that. My biggest issue is that everything David presents in this section is not reliable research, and yet he picks and chooses what to implement. For example, he states, Dr. Newton's clients revealed that souls can visit planets throughout our galaxy and possibly beyond it, though this notion is refuted in the Law of One series. So he states this, but he never explains why it is that the Law of One series should be given precedence over Dr. Newton's claims. They are both of equal validity to me in that they are both just people claiming things with external evidence. So it's, it's David basically playing favorites.
1: Well, yeah, the Law of One's his
0: thing. Yeah. But he can't
1: not go with it.
0: Yeah, if the Law of One is wrong, his whole thing he's, kind of falls apart. He's too invested in it. Now, this chapter nine, the hero in his story. This is where the wheels really, really begin to fall off. Nice. Uh, a decent portion of this chapter was just about David house hunting in Los Angeles and writing a script for a movie that never got made. According to I, I asked on Twitter about that, and Spooky told me that uh, the, the movie never came to be. Hell yeah! But boy, did he enjoy talking about it. Uh, To be clear, what I mean by this is that the citations David uses in this section are from script writing books or books about story structure. This goes back to the issue of him inflating his academic citations. Also, uh, I really enjoyed this. He cites a comment from an Amazon review of the young book archetypes of the collective unconscious.
1: Well, show me where in the rules it says you can't do that. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So, again, he did not cite the young book. He cited an Amazon comment about the book. Well, I mean, that's just as, you know, it's just as reliable as good. The, the comment was from Miles at Riverside, so congrats to him. <laughs> Big homo 69,
1: 420.
0: I do want to know if that guy is aware that his his comment was used in a New York Times bestselling book. Uh, he'd probably be thrilled. Uh, the further I got into this chapter, the more confused I was of its inclusion. It's just about filmmaking. There's a section here called, quote, <laughs> precisely calculating how much money a film will make through structure. Uh, this is David playing the character I've referred to as Hollywood Insider David, Hollywood Dave. Yeah, for for this he learns something very rudimentary about show business <laughs> and then regurgitates it to us in a condescending manner, as if he's divined This particular bit of you know what wisdom. everyone
1: loves, tits. Yeah,
0: <laughs> but not me, cause I'm gay. He talks. So much about screenwriting. And nice. then the, fuck, the the cherry on top is that the movie never got made. No. Which, which is just all the sweeter.
1: No, then he made two shittier movies. Yeah,
0: so there was that chapter nine about screenwriting. Then we, we quickly moved to chapter 10, the first and second the, acts. The key is sleep with <laughs> Harvey Weinstein. David got cast and couch. That's the
1: course. fastest way to get a, a, a role. Uh,
0: so unbelievably, this chapter is also about screenwriting. Nice. <laughs> he sort of tries to tie it together at the end uh, by saying that the same way screenwriting is very formulaic and repeats cycles, so too do our personal lives. Wow. In his words, quote, the emotional pain you go through in these cycles can be unimaginable until you truly face your fears and gain enough courage to weed out the villains, users, and manipulators in your life. Wow. You will never truly finish your quest. Wow. From there, Chapter 11, Facing Your Fears and Completing the Quest. This chapter is also about screenwriting. (laughs) Uh, We're we're skipping this, obviously, because there's no citations I can check. In in this chapter, he cites the Law of One, but he also cites Blake Snyder's book, Save the Cat, the last book on screenwriting you'll ever need. Hell yeah. Uh, I did learn in this chapter that David uses the phrase Dark Knight of the Soul because it's a screenwriting phrase. Ah. That's a technical term from the old biz. Yeah, that's that's what only Hollywood yeah. insider Dave can reveal yeah. to us.
1: Oh, that's what people in the know say.
0: He does, again, try and draw parallels between screenwriting formulas and everyday life, but it's, I mean, it's just not fucking true. Real life is not a movie. Bad people don't always redeem themselves. Sometimes people are just cowards. Awful shit happens to good people with no redeeming karmic realignment. This is just a naive and childish way of perceiving the world. I wish it were true, but it simply isn't. Life doesn't just guide us through these processes. If you require redemption, you must actively pursue it. It's not going to magically drop into your lap. One last thing in this chapter, and uh, I do realize we've deviated from our point of checking his scientific information, but he's not using much scientific information <laughs> here. Uh, he talks about the the miracle on the Hudson being a symbolic counterbalance to 9-11. The, you remember? Word. The miracle on the Hudson yeah. is uh, Sully Sullenberger. Yeah, he flew the plane in the water. Yeah, well, first he murdered a bunch of geese, yeah. and then that caused the plane to not work, so he yeah. landed in the Hudson. Uh, David says the famous Hudson photo of the survivors standing on the wing occurred at what else but 3.33 p.m. Wow. I did double check that and it does actually appear to be true. There's a screenshot of the survivors standing on the wings at 3.33 and 30 seconds. If I were him, though, I would have gone with the fact that the plane hit the water at 3.30 and 30 seconds because that number contains three threes rather than four of them. And technically, I think the miracle occurred when they hit the water and didn't die, not when they stood outside. No, it's when they got out. But based on everything else David has given us, that's accurate enough for me to count it as a win for David. The numbers are real. It was close enough. Chapter 12, we're, we're off screenwriting. Now we're on Joan of Arc Rises Again. Nice. We're back to cycles, and fittingly enough, I think one of David's sources sums up the problem with this viewpoint. This is from the book The Great Pyramid Decoded. Quote, there appears to be nothing improbable in a cyclic view of world history. In fact, the only real obstacle to the more general acceptance of such a view is the apparent lack of specific archaeological evidence to back it up. That might be one of the dumbest sentences I've ever read. (laughs) The the viewpoint is completely valid, except for the fact that there is no evidence to support it. Maybe we live our lives differently, but to me, the evidence is the thing that makes me believe something. All of David's research is teleological in that he already knows what his answer is, and then he just works backwards to force all the data points to fit his conclusion. Right. Uh, David uses that book about cycles we discussed at the beginning of last episode. This is where the book really gets frustrating. Is all the cycle shit with Michelle Helmer and Francois Mason and all that stuff. He talked about it in the first few chapters, then just ditched it talking about buying a house and writing a movie. Mm-hmm. And then he tried to circle back around to the shit he was talking about at the beginning. Right. Uh, oh, right. So in this part, he's talking about how Michelle Helmer was able to make many exact predictions. So the only evidence that this man made exact predictions exists on David's own website, Divine Cosmos. He doesn't actually say what the predictions are, but explains the aftermath of them. For example, Helmer, quote, chose as his starting point the year 1429 when the tide against the English in the uh, when the tide turned against the English in the Hundred Years War. He then makes the claim that 539 years later, which is 1968, that French youth brought about the shift in incredible destruction of a whole state of mind belonging to the past, the end of university mandarins and the repeal of many taboos. Uh, Predictions like this aren't really predictions because you can make claims such as these with literally any year in human history. There's never been a year that's gone by without something significant occurring somewhere on the globe. This is akin to me predicting someone will win the Super Bowl, but not saying who. Of course, someone's going to win the Super Bowl. It happens every single year. Predictions require precision. Many of the citations in this chapter are, (laughs) this was a good move. In terms of inflating citations, Mm -hmm. sometimes he would just mention a book and then cite the book. He wouldn't cite the information in the book. He would just be like, uh, you know, I read Cat in the Hat. And then the citation would just say Cat in the Hat, Dr. Seuss. Nice. So it's it's literally just to inflate the numbers. Oh, what part of the book? Just the book. I'm shocked he didn't cite the cover of a book. (laughs) He probably would if he could have figured out how. Well, if you if you cite Amazon comments, I don't think there's, there's a lower level you can stoop to. Jumping back to the claim that we exist in a world where history repeats itself and all of Earth's happenings are basically foretold, David defends this claim by saying, quote, Of course these events are not precisely the same. The names, the places, and specific details change, but the exact timing of major events, such as the biggest wars, repeat with astonishing precision. In case that's not clear, the exact same events occur, it's just that everything about them is different. I, I don't know how you write that sentence without your head fucking exploding. So the, the cycles, it's a precise cycle where the exact same things happen except nothing about them is similar and all the details are different. It's, it's Again, it's
1: what if everything was the same <laughs> but completely different?
0: It's, it's basically just uh, all the stuff that disagrees with me. If you ignore all that... Look yeah. how right I am.
1: What if, if you, you know, got rid of everything that was wrong?
0: Yeah, what what if we just overlooked that? <laughs> what are you left with? Nothing but right. This uh, this, this book is just despicable. Here's uh, the magic of repeating cycles. According to Helmer, you can find the 25,920-year cycle, which I believe David is up to 27,000 in the, the Michael prophecies for right, no reason. Right, right, right. So this 25,920-year uh, cycle... Uh, You can divide that into 2,160-year cycles for the zodiac symbols, and then that 2,160 number is divided by 4 to give 539. For those of you who are literate in math, you will note that 2,160 divided by 4 is not 539, it's 540. But we can't use that 540 number because it doesn't actually line up. They don't acknowledge that this ruins the point they're making, but rather say that you subtract that year to, quote, get additional harmonics that do not appear in the number 540. Nice So this I mean it's basically Just the pyramid inch All over Yeah again. he pyramid inched it Yeah it's just This is super precise yeah. Except for the parts except Where it's not precise Except for this <laughs> one part Where I have to You know fudge the numbers A little Yes uh, Now from there We get back to Good old Russian science David claims that it has been, quote, proved that all the most significant events on Earth do occur during the peak of sunspot cycles. Wow. There is an 11-year sun cycle where the sun transitions from a tranquil period known as the solar minimum to an active period known as the solar maximum. I could find no evidence to support the claim that the most significant events on Earth occur during the maximum. And David provides no research to support this claim. This is just another thing where you can take any year and find something significant to attach to the sun cycle. If you just Google biggest events of insert year here, you will find something for every single year. Uh, the point I'm making is saying stuff is going to happen is not a prediction. Stuff is stuff happens all the fucking time. Lord stuff is going to continue to happen
1: i I knew stuff was going to happen
0: we should write a book about it yeah so to me this is an example of apophenia apophenia is the tendency to see connection or meaningful pattern between unrelated or random things Uh, the visual version is pareidolia right funnily enough the origins of the term apophenia are from a 1958 publication about the beginning stages of schizophrenia I think that's kind of all this is. It's just desperate men furiously attempting to derive meaning out of unconnected events. As I always say, predict the events before they happen. Predicting the past is not a difficult endeavor. Use these cycles to tell us exactly what's going to happen before it happens, or please shut the fuck up. Quick sidebar before I address David's claim that uh, Joan of Arc fulfilled this cycle. David says that Joan of Arc's story is a perfect representation of the hero's journey he discussed in those screenwriting chapters. He says that various individuals embodied the main character of the hero's journey at certain points in history. He seems to be confused about the causality here. These people do not fulfill that script because it exists, but rather that script exists because those people have lived it. Joan of Arc wasn't bound by some cosmic script to live as she did, but rather that type of script exists because of people like her. Let me get a drink of water here.
1: David really wants to be Joan of Arc.
0: He loves Joan of Arc.
1: <laughs> yeah, you just—if David was going to be trans, that's why.
0: So, he, David, this is finally—he's going to finally give us the evidence we need to prove that everything is just a cycle and it's happening all over again. This—this uh, this is what he provides. Joan of Arc won a critical battle against the British on May eighth, fourteen twenty-nine. Five hundred and thirty nine years and four days after that, a French student led a mob of 300 students in an uprising because, quote, French students are mostly concerned that the girls should be able to visit the bedrooms of the boys, which is a rather limited conception of human rights. I'm not of the opinion that a bunch of horny Frenchmen trying to fuck is quite on the same level as Joan of Arc, but that's what David says. I
1: mean, I get it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's close enough. When, what's what's not to get?
0: Well, to really drive my point home about how worthless this cycle shit is, I did my own predicting. I was writing this section on December fifth, thus fulfilling the cycles of the giants who came before me. Also on December 5th in history, you had Charlemagne becoming the king of the Franks in 771. In 1082, the Count of Barcelona was assassinated on December 5th. In 1349, 500 Jews of Nuremberg were massacred during the Black Death riots. If you want to get even more specific in these types of predictions, you can. I was performing what could be called a literary work on December 5th. And in history, December 5th is also the same day in 1623 when Shakespeare's uh, works were first sold in one collective volume. Or if you want to look at what I'm doing as a negative, you could say I was also writing this on the same day in history when Blackbeard ransacked the merchant vessel, the Margaret, in 1717. Or maybe you could say I'm selling out by debunking David's work. Well, December 5th is also the date of the first Christie's auction in 1766. So on and so forth. You can do this for any day in the entire history of the world. Coincidences are not miracles. There's literally a website called like this day in history. Yeah, yeah, I think that's where I got all that date from. You just plug in any date and it gives you an entire list.
1: Apparently, in history, things (laughs) happened.
0: In a move that I suppose I should have seen coming, David does quite literally exactly what I just did. Uh, He just just goes back in time and finds random events that line up with different dates. Hell yeah. Chapter 13, the 2160-year cycle between Rome and the United States. This chapter begins with a little history lesson that doesn't seem to tie into anything. David talks about the Kennedy assassination and how the Beatles appeared on Ed Sullivan. And he also talks about Watergate. It feels at this point in the book David has completely abandoned any attempt at citing actual science. He's citing things like the Sgt. Pepper album or a book about the Beatles recording sessions. In reading it, I think David already believes that he has proven beyond any reasonable doubt that he can predict the future, and we should just now kind of accept what he says. Right. Uh, Well, so we've already, in the last episode, we already talked about Fomenko, Anatoly Fomenko, and his new chronology, but uh, David brings it back. So since David is such a fan of Russian science, I decided let's take a look at uh, what the Russian scientists were saying during the same time uh, these theories were being proposed in Russia. Mm -hmm. This is from a 1999 presentation titled Problems of Combating Pseudoscience, Discussion at the Presidium of the Russian Academy of Sciences. So this is what the contemporary Russian scientist had to say about what David is citing. This is translated from Russian by Google Translate, so some of the phrasing is a bit weird. My apologies Mm -hmm. for that. Quote, The report of the commission, voiced by the chairman, academician E.P. Kruglikov, was devoted mainly to the analysis and criticism of the spread of pseudoscience and paranormal beliefs in our society, astrology, shamanism, occultism, etc. The speaker stated that the country continues to attempt to implement various senseless projects at state expense, such as the creation of torsion generators. The population is offered television and radio programs, articles and books with openly anti-scientific content pseudoscience seeks to penetrate all layers of society all its institutions including the russian academy of sciences and other scientific communities this lecture talked about all sorts of false science occurring in russia at the time and how studies that had been un- uh, that had unreliable information or non-experimentally confirmed information were being published by the russian academy of sciences they talked about how the government groups were promoting things. I really like this one. Uh, they they were promoting, quote, a psychic sofa with a secret filling capable of treating up to 80 diseases, including impotence in men and frigidity in women. So they, <laughs> they, they invented a couch that gets your dick hard and makes people want to fuck. Nice. I don't know how you hear. They the, invented the casting couch. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how you hear that information. Don't just immediately know it's bullshit. Like they, I don't think anything's bullshit to David. No, but I, even the magic couch that gets your dick hard is even a little out there for him. Why not? There were also publications about a time machine and another His one. His couch make dick hard.
1: <laughs> uh, Best invention ever. He's
0: cut now. Uh, His fuck couch. <laughs> we
1: sell, make money, money.
0: Uh oh right so they they published it about time machine also and there was another one uh about healthy is
1: hot tub but <laughs> time machine also <laughs> I know crazy idea yeah. but is hot tub also time machine
0: screenplay by Anatoly Fomenko. <laughs> uh, there was also a paper about how the human soul was located in the throat, which now that I'm saying out loud does also sound like a casting couch thing.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess better than being in the asshole.
0: Yeah, I'd, I'd prefer that, I suppose. Yeah. They, <laughs> they also summarized the issue very well by stating, quote, how one must despise the people in order to preach such absurdity. And I agree, to intentionally mislead people in this way, you, you kind of got to hate them. An academic at this event named V.L. Ginsburg said this about Flamenco. Quote, in particular, the absurd works of A.T., that's Fomenko, are known. Fomenko, just recently, I received for review an article by Moscow State University professor N. Efremova and A. Zavanyagin about the so-called Fomenko chronology. This article shows Fomenko's illiteracy in processing astronomical data and the complete inconsistency of his conclusions in this regard. Uh, another academic named A. Furacinko said this about Fomenko. Quote, As the humanities, in particular, history, what is most important for it is the fight against pseudoscientific movements like the one represented by A.T. Fumango. There was actually even a second version of this event that occurred in 2003 where they discussed, quote, There is a systematic, deliberate fooling of the population through media. It's scary just from the headlines. Household lasers kill human blood. The collapse of classical physics. Blood-sucking monsters are returning. I wish I knew what that one was about. I don't I don't know what Russia was going, what they had going on during the time, but they're really you know, on
1: one. I think the
0: economy was
1: imploding <laughs> under the KGB and they're like, oh, what if magic could fix it? Yeah, what if Dracula
0: came back? Comrade, we need
1: uh, we need vampires to save
0: the economy. There was also one about a Russian physicist having discovered a new deadly radiation. So an even newer and deadlier. Poverty, crippling poverty. David doesn't mention it in this book, but because I was already really deep into reading about fabrication Russian science, I decided to include the following section about torsion fields, which uh, David has spoken of. This is what the vice president and the first deputy general designer of the company that supposedly developed this stuff had to say. Quote, RSC Energy has not been, is not engaged in, and does not intend to engage in the development of flying saucers based on torsion field generators. But why let that get in the way of well, that's uh, claiming they are? <laughs> One and, less competitor for David. Uh, yes. Novati is going to fill that space. Uh, another person at the 2003 conference had this to say, quote, the swindlers who make their living on the so-called torsion technologies care little about the fact that Shipov as well as Akmov, does not have a single publication in any of the serious peer-reviewed physics journals, that the technologies described in Shipov's book do not exist. The deception begins literally from the first lines. The author claims that the book includes materials from lectures he gave at the physics department of Moscow State University in 93 and 96. Lie. The certificate from the dean's office of the physics department states that G.I. Shipov did not give a course of lectures on the theory of physical vacuum or other courses of lectures at the faculty of physics of Moscow State University. Uh, it was actually kind of crazy for me to read through this section because it addressed so much of the Russians. Like, almost everything David has cited was in these uh, symposiums. Right. Uh, another example, there was uh, the Russian gas company that David was citing in the Michael prophecies. It was said about the dude who did that science that he was, quote, either crazy, drunk, or a liar. Maybe all three. <laughs> Anyways. We could uh, we could get stuck on this forever. My point is, in all this, is that David presents these findings as if everyone has simply ignored them. When, in fact, in their country of origin, academics hosted multiple conferences talking about how bad the research was and how they were worried it would bring about the collapse of the scientific community in their country. There is no evidence and these people are literally known liars. Uh, I really wanted to throw in the towel at this point, um, just because there, there's so many claims that you can't prove, uh, such as David said Hitler and Hannibal were the same person. That's pretty cool. Yeah, he doesn't. Wait, what do you
1: mean <laughs> the the Russian scientists are bad?
0: <laughs> yeah, the Hitler and Hannibal are the same guy. What are you talking about? Well, after this evidence, how could we doubt it? He says the proof for this is they are both great military strategists and they both have the letters H I and L in their names.
1: Well, that's clearly enough. I mean that's
0: that's How much more do you need? <laughs> yeah, that's practically proof. They have the same letters. You think it's just accidental? As further proof, David put a drawing of Hannibal next to a drawing of Hitler, which is a weird move because there's plenty of pictures of Hitler. David picked two images in which both men are captured at the same angle and even then they don't look that similar. It's kind of like what he did with the egg Casey thing. Right. Where it's like, hey, when I take a picture dressed up and with makeup. Yeah, done, when I
1: cosplay as Edgar Casey.
0: Yeah, I look a lot like Edgar Don't Casey. I look like it? Wow, funny how that happens. So I uh I decide to do my own comparison. If you want to throw this up on the screen, the top there is Hannibal, the bottom there is Hitler. Wow, they both had faces. <laughs> yeah. That uh I think that really is about the only only similarity is they both have Human male faces.
1: Yeah, you know Hitler had a pretty iconic
0: look. Yeah, there were he was uh, he was one of one, and he ruined yeah. the look for everyone that came after him.
1: Yeah, except Michael Jordan.
0: He's the only guy loved enough to pull it off.
1: Yeah. All right, you wow. can take this
0: off. Um, chapter fourteen: Vietnam, Watergate, and the fall of the Iron Curtain. David continues to just do the thing I said he did earlier where he takes a date, something happened, and then just subtracts some number of years and is like, hey, look, other stuff happened. Wow. He just did that for a lot of chapters in a row. He also, uh, he did more of the, the picture comparison stuff. I didn't bother looking at other pictures. He did it with uh, Jimmy Carter and Cato the Censor and also Richard Nixon and Scipio Africanus. None of them look remotely alike. And again, he used poor uh, poorly drawn pencil images of people of thousands of pictures that exist of them. So really, I guess the only point is, yes, when you draw someone to look a lot like someone else, They look like that person. Yeah,
1: funny how that works.
0: Chapter 15, the sky is not falling, only our blindfolds are. David just continues doing the same thing here. He uses a nice little trick in the beginning of this chapter, though, where he refers back to the shitty evidence he presented before, but he speaks of it as concrete proof. He starts this chapter by reiterating that Michelle Helmer predicted four years in advance that the French student uprising would occur, which, no, he did not. Uh, But by referring to it in that way, David is trying to solidify in the reader's mind that the evidence he's presented is sufficient and any reasonable person would be convinced by it. And because David wants to continuously return to this new chronology, I figured I'd go over some additional sources and what they have to say about it. This time we go to Charles Halberin, who has a PhD in Russian history from Columbia University. The following are excerpts from a report titled False Identity and Multiple Identities in Russian History, The Mongol Empire, and Ivan the Terrible. Halberin has this to say of Fomenko's work. Quote, The methodology purports to be good natural science, mathematics, and astronomy, but it is actually bad humanities history and linguistics research. Because its conclusions are worthless, the support engendered by the new chronology among the Russian public requires explanation and sheds light on the current status of historiography and historical memory in Russia. Uh, I guess maybe the best example I can give that parallels this is kind of in the way... QAnon was ridiculous, but so many people believed it that mm. we had to try and explain what the fuck caused so many people to go nuts. Right. That, this is kind of the Russian version of that, right. where he wrote a paper that was like, how, how did everyone become insanely stupid?
1: Communism.
0: <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, he also stated that, quote, Flamenco's theories are worthless fantasies, utterly devoid of serious value for the study of history. It seems only fitting that the people David bases his works on have habits similar to his own. As Halpern describes, quote, the new chronology is methodologically unsound, inconsistent, and contradictory, and its version of history is contradicted by evidence its authors cavalierly dismiss or totally disregard. So it's that thing again where, you know, it's, it's 100% true except for all the stuff that disagrees with it, and we'll just kind of ignore that. Right. Uh, he also states, quote, critics attack Fomenko and Nozovsky's scientific methodology and its utility for historical reconstruction, accusing them, for instance, of ignorance of astronomy. Their statistical analysis of duplicate dynasties is based upon arbitrary and selective reinterpretation of dates to make the comparisons fit. Fomenko and Nozavisky accepted as equivalent dates and numbers, let alone names, which are close, not exactly the exactitude required of proofs and mathematics of which they impute to their conclusions. They manipulate chronology at will, equating one ruler to many, as for Ivan IV, or many rulers to one to accommodate their conclusions. Moreover, they either totally ignore the biographies of the paired rulers or distort them to make them match. So it wasn't... uh, When I finally read this paper... This is kind of when it clicked for me, the new chronology, it's a rewrite of history in which Russia fulfills the role of the main character. So kind of yeah. what you were talking about a second ago. It's very similar to the way black Hebrew Israelites rewrite history so that black people nice. are every major historical figure and play pivotal roles in all of history. The ideas are attractive because they place a struggling people in the powerful role. This is just fanfic for a Russian population that was struggling a lot in the 1990s. It's the Russian version of We Were Kings.
1: George Washington, Russian.
0: <laughs> yeah. Albert. Abraham, Lincoln, Lincoln, Russian. uh, Cleopatra, actually a white woman. White woman. (laughs) The good news is that apparently the American people have jumped off of this uh, recurring cycle. This is because if the cycle were true, we would have entered an intense war in 2006 to coincide with the Roman history we were supposed to be repeating. Instead of taking that as a sign that maybe this whole cycle thing is bullshit, David takes it to mean that we're finally learning our lessons whatever that means, even though war occurring all around the world has uh, not really stopped. Here's a funny little excerpt that shows how quickly and drastically David changes his mind. In this passage, he's speaking about how he feels conservative Christians are the puppets of the cabal. Quote, It has become increasingly obvious that Republican conservatives have portrayed themselves as if they support family values while actively pursuing aggressive imperial policies similar to those of fascist regimes their forefathers secretly financed in World War II. These policies are also similar to those of the communist Soviet regime they covertly built up in 1917. The fans of conspiracy websites have become akin to religious zealots in their own way, increasingly addicted to an endlessly replenished daily diet of sarcastic, victimized, angry, and hopeless rantings that give them a temporary high of righteous anger. Each new burst of fear porn soon bottoms out into a much harder and longer-lasting crash in which the conspiracy reader is drowning in a prison of fear, depression, paranoia, and loneliness. This can have terrible effect on the peace and harmony of their families as well. Wow. Now, you can note all that went out the window when he started claiming Trump was the savior and it was actually the Democrats who were the evil fascists. Yeah,
1: how the turns table. Yeah,
0: so that was in a period of, I, I guess this book came out in like 2013, so in a period of about two years, uh, the fascists switched parties, I guess.
1: Well, you know, cycles and such.
0: Yeah, that's true. I, I, I guess all the Democrats were fascists so in, in all Rome. All circle. Uh, Uh, Then with no sense of irony whatsoever, David writes, quote, in the Wild West of alternative internet media, facts and journalistic integrity are often thrown right out the window. I, I, I don't know how he can write that and not realize he's one of those guys. Nah, that's not him. That's not me, dude. <laughs> no, I got I got briefly happy here because David finally mentions aliens, but it's only to cite our favorite uh, website, India Daily. Nice. <laughs> uh, it's an article about how aliens interfere with nuclear installations. Dude, India Daily covers everything that matters. I had no idea uh, aliens were big in India until They we love
1: Indians, dude. Their whole religion's probably Indians.
0: So this whole thing about aliens interfere with nuclear installations it's sort of an accepted phenomenon within the ufo space aliens come down prevent us from killing each other with uh, nukes is i guess the theory right uh the problem i have with this is the theory requires the aliens to really hate the japanese because as you'll all remember well that
1: makes sense
0: the japanese got hit twice by nuclear bombs and i guess the aliens didn't really see fit to do anything then well look they they deserved it it would be very funny if the aliens just hate the Japanese. Yeah, no, they're
1: fiercely anti-Japanese.
0: Now, it wouldn't be a David Wilcock work without Pete Peterson being cited. Hell yeah. David refers to him as highly intelligent and clearly genuine insider. (laughs) He also claims that it was Pete Peterson appearing on Project Camelot that caused him to lose his government pension. Wow. I don't think any of Pete Peterson's information has ever been borne out, but in case someone's unfamiliar, let's uh, give background to Peterson. All of the following information I took from uh, an episode of Steve Campion's Truth Seekers where he went over Bill Ryan, uh, what Bill Ryan said on the Project Avalon forum, and also did research into Pete Peterson's GoFundMe. I guess I should probably put out all these links at a certain point. If you want to find that episode, it's titled Pete Peterson and David Wilcock GoFundMe Investigation. And I guess if you guys really want the links I'm using here, just email us and I'll send along the paper. Uh, So here we go. Here's, here's all the claims. We'll just kind of rattle these off. Pete Peterson made the claim that he was the first person to invent the word processor computer equipped with a QWERTY keyboard. That is not true. Pete Peterson claimed his company was named Cyberdyne, which is the same name as the company in the Terminator. David really loves the Terminator. I mean, they, of course. He has multiple things. He also said uh, the Terminator was a, a six-year-old girl is how it manifested in physical form. And and uh, I don't remember the other claim, but yes, it's... it's well, That's
1: David's biggest fears, little girls.
0: <laughs> I guess it probably is. Uh, yes, so there is no evidence that uh, Pete Peterson had a company ever named Cyberdyne. Right. Uh, Pete claimed to have a degree from Golden State College, which later became Stanford. This is false on two accounts. He does not have a degree, and Stanford was never named Golden State College. Pete, <laughs> Some of these claims are so ridiculous, too. Pete claimed he was an elected leader in the Russian version of NASA. Nice. Uh, Steve actually called the Russian embassy to ask him about this, and they, they said that uh, Pete Peterson was not an elected member of the uh, space is his program. Name? Pete Peterson? Pete also claimed that he was awarded the Gold Order of Lenin for his work in the Soviet Union. Again, John Lenin. <laughs> again, the Russian embassy said that is not true. Um Pete claimed he was a prolific inventor, but he has no registered patents. Pete claims he was an advisor to Ronald Reagan. The Reagan Library says that's not true. The, uh, the GoFundMe, I really do like this move. As much as I uh, hate grifting, sometimes when a guy can pull it off and get like... When it's s- done
1: well... When
0: you can get when you can lie and you get $70,000, there is a part of me that's really impressed. Nice. Especially when the lie is this bold faced. Um, So this GoFundMe was set up because Pete claimed he needed donations to save his home. He said after he appeared on two episodes of Cosmic Disclosure, armed police showed up at his house and confiscated all his shit and threw it in a hole. Wow. Now, do notice he's using the same playbook I mentioned a few sentences ago where he said he lost his pension because he appeared on Project Camelot, and now he's apparently losing his house because he appeared on Cosmic Disclosure.
1: No, it's not because I'm addicted to heroin.
0: <laughs> well, if if I every time I appeared on a show, they took some of my shit, I'd probably just stop appearing.
1: I would, yeah, I would consider it.
0: So first uh, first of all, there was nothing that showed he had ownership of that home. I think it was his girlfriend's, and he tried to claim like a common law ownership. He also had not lived in that home for a year, and it was just basically his hoarding ground. He just put all his junk there. Wow. Uh, the police department denied that they sent armed officers to his home, and he had actually been served with five eviction notices before they started clearing out his shit. So, <laughs> contrary to his claim that the government just came came out of nowhere and did oh, this. Oh, okay,
1: they left a few, <laughs> noti- oh, five eviction notices. Okay, how was I supposed to know?
0: Yes, he had a uh, significant forewarning that this was going to happen.
1: This came out of absolutely nowhere.
0: I, I was blindsided. Yeah, <laughs> I, need to, I want my day in court. Uh, so, David, this was another thing I'd forgotten about until I was listening to Steve. Uh, David said he was supposed to inherit Pete's stuff and that all that stuff was worth millions of dollars, damn! but unless dead cats and jars of piss are worth much more than I thought, that is also not true. (laughs) David was
1: really holding out on that money, too. He really needed that to come through.
0: This really just solidifies for me that Pete Peterson may may be like a top 10 liar of all time. Dude, he told some doozies. He basically lied. His his career was lying. That's all he did is he just lied. He just found a bunch of
1: suckers who bought every dumb fucking thing he had to say.
0: And then people just kept giving him money. Uh, David's relationship with Pete in which he makes outlandish claims in order to try and turn a profit on some of his fabricated reputation reminds me a lot of his current work with Stavati and his claims about his partner there inventing crazy technology and also being responsible for the ships in Star Wars. It's basically a rinse and repeat with David. Once he lost uh, Pete Peterson as the insider, he found some other guy who he can lie about.
1: Well, you can't be David without an insider.
0: Yeah, you got to have a top secret guy. Yeah. Sometimes I I just get lost reading these books because it really is a glimpse into the mind of an insane person. He started this section by talking about that cycle bullshit, and then he got lost and started talking about Pete Peterson. And from there, he jumped to Operation Paperclip and then interspersed in all that boring information is uh, some more boring information about the U.S. elections. I thought he was eventually going to try and tie this back to the cycle stuff, but that never happened. He just kind of wrote a book report in the middle of a chapter for no reason. Right. Chapter 16, September 11th from both sides of the veil. My David Asymptote of Awareness Theory makes an appearance yet again. Quote, I looked at the 2,160 year Zodiac cycle first, but there were no events in Roman history that lined up with (laughs) 9-11. But no worry. The next best choice was the 539 year quarter cycle. I immediately discovered that 9-11 was only six days away from a major European battle in the previous turn of the cycle. Well, close enough. So again, this is the first cycle, which is supposed to be precise. That It had no information that was, that was useful. Right. So we just ignore that. Right. And then we use the 539 year cycle, which do recall is actually a 540 year cycle. You just subtract one because, because.
1: Well, I mean, look how accurate does accurate need to be?
0: And and then when you do all that, it's still over a week off, or I guess under a little under a week, six I mean, it's within a week. Uh, This is like me saying I'm psychic because I can answer all multiple choice questions correctly, but I am only able to do it because I just guess every option until I'm eventually right. A good tool to use when trying to figure out if your theory is valid is consider all possible outcomes and how they affect your theory. If no matter the outcome, you can rework your theory to be applicable, it's probably not a good theory. It should in some way be falsifiable. Then with the lack of awareness that really defines David Wilcock, he says this with regards to nine eleven Quote, if you have taken the time to study the facts, you may be able to lecture about this case for hours, but if you've refused to look at it, then you will probably reject every piece of evidence you see and nothing will ever convince you. So <laughs> he, he somehow, he has the ability to recognize how big of a problem that type of thinking is, Completely lacks the ability to realize he's participating in that variety of thinking.
1: Well, David's never been one for self awareness.
0: No, maybe he should, done uh, with that uh, that near death experience, dude did, and just stare at a mirror for a long time.
1: I think he should just do ketamine.
0: <laughs> it couldn't hurt. at this point. It couldn't hurt. Does it go to K holes, David? Anyways, David starts talking about how 9-11 was the new Pearl Harbor and the Patriot Act. I, I don't disagree that the Patriot Act was a mistake, but I'm confused as to what it has to do with the 13 years war that was in full swing in 1462, which I guess is supposed to be what this ties into. He keeps returning to this precise cycle, only to then abandon it to rant about unrelated topics and how great he is. Uh David, he, he looks like Edgar Casey. Has he ever mentioned that? Oh no way. Yeah, he well, in case you weren't aware, he Breaking decided uh, news. Yeah, he decided to go off on a nice little tangent about it here. The next section of this chapter is titled Susan Lindauer Tells the Truth. In it, David cites how Susan claimed to have knowledge of 9-11 before it happened, and she also claims she was ordered by the U.S. government to sabotage her negotiations with the Iraq government. Uh, he doesn't really ex- provide a reason for that, I guess just so we could kill more Iraqis. Mm-hmm. Also I, I'm just putting this together now if you had foreknowledge of 9 eleven and didn't tell anyone, doesn't that make you a really bad person? Well,
1: it has to happen
0: Well oh maybe that's it it has yeah, the you cycle can't, you can't just stop 9 eleven no the cycle must be fulfilled. yeah there is a uh, let me take a drink of water. I'm sorry, I'm talking so much.
1: Yeah, you can't stop bad things from happening. That wouldn't make you wrong.
0: No, good people let Some people need, stuff happen. Look, sometimes
1: people need to die so I can be right on the internet.
0: Maybe David just hates everyone who was in the towers. Look, if
1: they didn't die, how could I write this book?
0: <laughs> there's a, So there's been a problem with trusting Susan Lindauer, in my estimation. In 2000... She's a lesbian. Worse than that even. <laughs> <laughs> in, uh, in 2003, she was charged with, quote, acting as an unregistered agent of a foreign government. Chi- oh, okay. As well as... <laughs> <laughs> as 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 well as violating u.s financial sanctions that alone is probably enough to question what she says but it's the next part that really drives this point home after being incarcerated in 2005 she was released because two separate judges ruled her mentally unfit to stand trial nice uh she was also described as having a lengthy delusional history
1: yeah the old i'm too cuckoo for court
0: also, a uh, nice little synchronicity here, which is only fitting. This is the first legitimate synchronicity in this entire fucking story. Uh, she was incarcerated at Carswell Air Force Base, which is the same Air Force Base Corey Good received his psychic training at. Nice. Uh, it's probably not good if you're receiving your training at the same place we uh, jail traitors. Oh, he received it in <laughs> prison. <laughs> it is. Uh, it's not easy to be deemed incompetent to stand trial. Like, I don't I don't know. Yeah, you got
1: to be pretty cuckoo.
0: Think of all the serial killers and psychopaths that were deemed competent to stand trial, and now imagine someone who is crazier than that.
1: Yeah, you gotta be straight kooky.
0: David uh, makes the claim that Flight 93, that was the one where the passengers fought back, the whole let's roll thing. Right. uh, He claims that plane was shot down. Oh. For this, he cites the previously mentioned Susan Lindauer, as well as a woman named Elizabeth Nelson. I don't know why he gave her the name Elizabeth Nelson, because that isn't her name. So I can't check her story, which makes it even weirder to include a first and last name that has nothing to do with anything. He just thought it was a sick pseudonym. Uh, She claims she was in the room when the government made the decision to shoot down the flight, which, you know, goes against the official story. But we'll get to that. Uh, She her her story wouldn't be completely unbelievable to me, but the only place her testimony appears is in. Project Camelot. Uh, Project Camelot has played host to many a delusional individual over the years, from David himself to Corey Good to Utsava, the psychic patriot, and uh, a significant number of super soldiers. And that one guy whose name I can't remember, who we thought he was on drugs, and it turned out he OD'd on Turkish (laughs) Xanax later on. Yeah, not exactly. What I'm saying is. Project Cam they got us. a few
1: misses, few hits, few misses, happens.
0: Yeah, they don't have the strongest reputation for yeah. vetting their sources. Oh,
1: okay, when they miss, they're complete, utter lunatics. Yeah, oh, okay.
0: And uh, because I love any excuse to read about 9-11 conspiracies, and I desperately, desperately needed a break from reading David, I decided to see what some of the conspiracy claims about Flight 93 were. I will not insert my own opinion here, but I'll present the theory and the rebuttal, and everyone can decide for themselves. The people who claim uh, Flight 93 was shot down point to the fact that witnesses saw a small plane in the vicinity at around the time of the crash. The rebuttal to this is that there was a jet in the vicinity, but it was also a known entity based on flight tracking. It was a Falcon 20 business jet owned by an apparel company that markets Wrangler jeans and other brands. The FFA, uh, FAA also states that the plane was already in descent at this time, and it was shown to be at an altitude of three to 4,000 feet as opposed to the claimed 34,000 feet. Uh, another claim is that the engine was found at such a distance, multiple miles from the uh, the crash site, mm-hmm. and, and they say that is evidence it had to be shot down. Jeff Reinbold, who is the National Park Service representative responsible for the Flight 93 National Memorial, said that the engine was found just 300 yards to the south, and he also said it's not unusual for an engine to move or tumble across the ground. Michael K. Hines, an airline accident expert, Stated that when, uh, quote, when you have very high velocities, 500 miles per hour or more, you were talking about 7 to 800 feet per second. For something to hit the ground with that kind of energy, it would only take a few seconds for it to bounce and travel 300 yards. And then in February of 2004, a retired Army colonel appeared on our our good buddy Alex Jones' show. Nice. And uh, made the claim that it was Major Rick Gibney of the North Dakota Air Guard that fired two Sidewinder missiles at Flight 93, thus destroying it. Hell yeah. According to the Air National Guard spokesperson, Gibney did fly a jet that morning but was nowhere uh, nowhere near Shanksville. Additionally, Ed Jacoby, who was, was in the plane with Gibney that day, had this to say, quote, I summarily dismissed that Lieutenant Colonel Gibney, uh, oh, sorry, I summarily dismissed that because Lieutenant Colonel Gibney was with me at that time. It disgusts me to see this because the public is being misled. More than anything else, it disgusts me because it brings up fears, it brings up hopes, it brings up all sorts of feelings, not only to the victims' families, but to all the individuals throughout the country and the world for that matter. I get angry at the misinformation out there. So. Old Dick
1: Gibney, that liar. <laughs> so
0: take from that what you will. Everyone knows old Dick Gibney's full of shit. And while, while I enjoyed our brief reprieve from David's kookiness, it's time to get back to cycles. Hell yeah. Chapter 17, cycles and prophecies at the end of age. Uh, more cycle stuff that we're kind of going to skip. Actually, I, I think we've we've made our point here. But I did want to point out at this time, David was a big fan of Obama. And that uh, later changed when... uh, Well, that's
1: why he was so heartbroken.
0: Yeah, where... Obama, what the hell are you doing, man? He loved him. And that was what led to... I think I want to be up here on this fucking camera talking about this shit. He was heartbroken. He loved Obama, man. (laughs) He really did. Uh, David claims he predicted... Dick riding, dick riding.
1: (laughs) Obama. Obama.
0: David claims he predicted the events of the 2000 election. In one of that's pretty cool. Yeah, it would be, wouldn't it? uh, (laughs) In one of his psychic readings, he stated, quote, the vice president looks at this as being partly his own authorship while not realizing that he is completely naked. The interim period decides the next victor. To David's credit, he did say that he thought Gore was going to lose uh, the election before the date when Gore conceded. However, that reading is from June 23rd, 1999, and David didn't uh, decide that it had any connection to the 2000 election until November 24th of 2000, which is, you know, after the election had happened. Right, right. To continue beating a dead horse, please use your prophecy to predict the future before the future happens. I know that's a lot more difficult.
1: Well, look now, let's not get unrealistic.
0: It's a lot more difficult, but it would be much more convincing. Uh, Because I didn't go into the method David uses to create these prophecies when we covered the Michael prophecies, let's uh, do it here. It is my belief that David is doing a bizarre form of cold reading where he is both psychic and subject. Cold reading is a technique where people make vague statements that could apply to anyone. And then once they hit on one that is pertinent to the subject, they quickly reinforce that prediction. In this way, David neglects all the times in his channeling sessions that he said nothing of value, but will isolate the handful of times where he can twist the words to suit his needs. I say is psychic and subject because typically in cold readings, the psychic will tell the subject that their their psychic connection is sometimes fuzzy, and they need the help of the subject to interpret the true meaning.
1: Fascinating.
0: The more willing the subject, the more believable the effect, and David is his own very eager subject who is incredibly willing to interpret his own prophecy in the most charitable way possible. Huh. This particular case about him predicting Al Gore's concession is an example of something called Barnum Statements, named after P.T. Barnum. These statements appear to be specific while still providing an ample amount of wiggle room to interpret it in a beneficial way. Let's look at the statement again. The vice president looks at this as being partly his own authorship while not realizing that he is completely naked. The interim period decides the next victor. Regardless of who won the election, David would have been able to spin uh, spin this phrase. Al Gore was Clinton's vice president, so that phrase would apply to him no matter what, and the rest could be used to place blame or claim on him for either losing or winning the election. Wow. Additionally, the phrase "the interim period decides the next victor" will literally always be true. The next, uh, the events that occur between election days always decide the winner. People don't just show up and pick a random name, or at least I hope not. So the the campaigning always occurs in that interim period. Another example of this is a separate reading in which David states, similarly, the greed and desire for limitless profits is also now fueling the stock market's increases. All right, we're back. Okay, everyone, uh, we just had a... a fucking emergency oh, happened so it, close the, the laptop just fucking panicked and <laughs> shut down we thought we lost the whole thing so uh, we did lose some of what we did so i'm going to be completely honest about the next page and a half brandon and i literally just did this like yeah. five minutes ago now hopefully the adrenaline
1: made us forget
0: yeah so you know it's uh if it it sounds like maybe we're not super enthused it's because we we just did this <laughs> but anyways <laughs> Another example of this is a separate reading, in which David states similarly, the greed and desire for limitless uh, profits is now fueling the stock market's increases. As this is seen to fall away, there will be many of those who have placed great faith in the stock market who will suddenly have all of their earnings vaporized. David uses this statement to say he predicted the dot-com collapse of 2000, the collapse that occurred after 9-11, and the 2008 collapse. This is another one of those statements that is just always going to be true in the long run. We saw it again during COVID where the stock market was doing very well and then cratered after everything shut down. This is the equivalent of telling someone they're going to die and then claiming you predicted their death when it happens, as if that's not just something that happens to everyone. Right. The closest example I could think of this is Nostradamus, so let's talk about what people think of his work. The following is from a 2023 article titled How Nostradamus Works, and I believe it parallels David's own Michael Prophecies predictions pretty well. Quote The most compelling argument against Nostradamus' power is that his apparent hits are the result of random chance and creative interpretation. There are nearly 1,000 quatrains, most containing more than one prediction, and all but a few are described in vague, obscure terms. Over the course of hundreds of years, it's certainly possible that some events would line up with some predictions simply due to coincidence. In fact, Nostradamus may have phrased his prophecies with exactly this in mind. Most quatrains refer to deaths, wars, or natural disasters, events that are sure to occur again and again throughout history. Nostradamus's esoteric style also increases the chances of a perceived hit. His metaphorical writing highlights general relationships and conflicts, not specific details. People, or possibly nations, are described as animals. Major figures are referred to by their attributes. The Hitler quatrain, for example, refers to beasts ferocious from hunger, the Great One, and an iron cage. All general terms with metaphorical elements. This imprecise language does lend itself well to subjective interpretation. When the exact meaning is unclear, it's easy to plug in one's own experiences to reach some sort of understanding. Chapter 18, 9-11 and the Defeat of the Cabal the cycle perspective, also known as, as where the, the great, uh, but the powers that be tried to silence us when I began reading this last time. Right. Uh, we finally get an attempt to tie the 1400s into more modern times. The final battle that wiped, uh, quote, the final battle that wiped out the strength and morale of the Teutonic Knights was on September 28th, 1466. This brings us to September 28th, 2005 in the next quarter cycle. September 28th, 2005 was just 26 days after the (laughs) Hurricane Katrina uh, critically defeated the Bush administration, irreversibly destroying their support base. So, yes, almost a full month. And then on top of that, I double-checked that date, and Hurricane Katrina actually hit on August 29th of 2005. So it was even more days than that. Uh, Not exactly as precise as David would like it to be. Right, right. Also, uh, I I included this just because it's funny. David believes that all sporting stadiums were built by the Cabal to be internment camps. Yep. From there, we quickly jump off the cycle stuff to again uh, to David again, kind of just padding out the page count by recounting how he lived in Kentucky when Hurricane Katrina hit, as if that matters at all. And then finally, David decided to praise Hillary Clinton in his section uh, yeah. for calling her an independent he praised her for calling for an independent investigation of the crimes that occurred during katrina nice and as you're all familiar with now he no longer believes her to be a hero he believes her to be a satanic pedophile she's dead chapter 19 history gets a wicked case of deja vu we uh, get a reveal here that probably should have happened several hundred pages ago that michelle helmer guy eventually discovered that quote not all cycles are perfectly round which is a very unique way of admitting that these cycles do not line up at all, but you still think they do. Yeah, and they're actually whatever shape you need. Yeah, pretty much. It, I, I kind of see where David gets his love of shapes. Yeah. is. Shapes kind of work for whatever you need them Shapes
1: to. can fit different things.
0: For example, now David makes the claim that the French Revolution in 1789 was paralleled by the Russian Revolution of 1917. That doesn't, fall, uh, that doesn't fall along any of the previously mentioned cycles. I don't feel I really need to explain why this is pants on head retarded. Of course, one revolution is going to have some parallels to another revolution. Yeah, they're revolutions. They're both the same thing, just in different locations. That's the category. Yeah, it'd be like me saying we're in a time loop with 2020 because an election is coming up. Uh, from here, oh, we, we made it. It didn't shut down. The powers that be didn't silence us. It's still on. Cool. Now on to new stuff. David tries to compare the death of Robespierre with the downfall of Stalin, but Robespierre was killed by guillotine on July 28th, and Stalin was found in a puddle of his own piss on March 1st after he had a stroke. That is eight months apart. Also, David makes the claim that Stalin was for sure 100% killed by a poison, uh warfarin, wolf- wow. which is a blood thinner. For this, this may be one of my favorite sources in the entire book. For this claim, he cites a paper called Stalin's Last Crime, The Plot Against the Jewish Doctors. (laughs) Uh, I wasn't familiar with the death of Stalin, so I did some quick research and found two separate papers written recently that disagree with David's assessment that he was 100% poisoned. The first is a 2019 report titled, What Did Joseph Stalin Really Die Of? A Reappraisal of His Illness, Death, and Autopsy Findings. This report was published in the official journal for the Society of Cardiovascular Pathology. You know, it's no plot against Jewish doctors, but I guess that'll have to do. It's not quite the same. This uh, reports that Stalin's, quote, death was not due to the administration of warfarin, but rather to a hypertension-related cerebrovascular accident resulting in a massive hemorrhagic stroke involving involving his left cerebral hemisphere. The counter-narrative was based on the misunderstanding of certain specific autopsy findings, namely, uh, namely the presence of focal myocardial and petechial hemorrhages in the gastric and te- uh Gastric and intestinal mucosa, which could be attributed to the extracranial pathophysiologic changes that can occur as a consequence of a stroke rather than the highly speculative counter-narrative that Stalin was poisoned by the administration of warfarin. The second paper is titled, Tyrant's End, Did Joseph Stalin Die from Warfarin Poisoning? This paper concludes that, quote, after examining the evidence, this article concludes that both Stalin's disease course and the properties of Warfarin make it highly unlikely that he was deliberately assassinated. Nice. So that was... That's, so no. No. And that's why David's books are so difficult to do this for, is he... He makes so many wrong claims and he just tosses them out so willy nilly that it's very difficult to slow down and have to fact check every part of a sentence.
1: Well, I mean, how accurate does accurate really mean? That's a good point.
0: How, what, what no. shape
1: is this history? Yeah, like who, what are we talking
0: Uh, The book at this point has purely devolved into trying to hit some sort of page count. I'm convinced of this or word count uh, that Anatoly Flamingo guy who he's been using the work of for the entire book to describe cycles. He somehow decided 80 percent of the way through this book that now it would be a good time to explain who he is and what he does. Well, you know, he got around to it. Yeah, yeah. It's usually you introduce somebody by describing who they are and what they do. He likes (laughs) doing the whole,
1: you know, reverse timeline narrative.
0: I think he was trying to get cute and do like he was jumping around in history type thing, but it really was just more confusing than anything else. Yeah, it's really
1: just insane.
0: Uh, This section did reveal something that I think makes this particular transgression by David especially egregious. He writes that he was reading Flamenco's work in March of 2013. By by that time, both the Russian conferences about pseudoscience I previously cited had occurred and the paper by Charles Halperin debunking Fomenko had also been out for two years at that point. I previously imagined David had done this research in the early 2000s and was just now regurgitating it for the book. The fact that he was doing this in 2013 shows that he never even makes an attempt to fact check his sources. Well, what would be the point of that? Yeah, I guess you'd have to, you know, rewrite the book if you bothered to check your sources.
1: Well, if I have sources, I assume they're right.
0: But you should also probably not uh, be so willing to make the claim that you stand on your sources when you never even do a cursory search uh, for something that disagrees with them. I think David likes to fake it. Uh, Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Does he like to fake it or does he just fucking believe it?
1: Well, I mean, he believes it. But I mean, I think he just he just assumes that if you say it's right, people will think it's right.
0: Uh, Yes, it's a very naive. I I don't think he believes in lying. I don't think he thinks lying is real.
1: No, I think he thinks most people are telling the truth.
0: Oh, also in 2004, Fomenko had been uh, given an award that in English translate to Certificate of Dishonor or Respectable Illiteracy. This award is given to the worst book published in Russia. It was handed out at the 2004 Moscow International Book Fair. I will finish off this now third pass at Fomenko's work by citing Konstantin Shyko's 2014 book, History as Therapy Alternative History and Nationalist Imaginings in Russia. He describes Fomenko's work as follows Fomenko provides no fair minded review of the historical literature about a topic with which he deals, quotes only those sources that serve his purposes, uses evidence in ways that seem strange to professionally trained historians and asserts the wildest speculation as if it has the same status as the information common to the conventional historical literature. And I included that because you could easily just slap David's name in that statement, and it uh, reads almost exactly the same.
1: Boy, could you.
0: This section also contains David admitting that even Flamenco had stated the cycles were just approximate. Uh, And then again, in this section, the numbers get tinkered with to better align. Now, instead of there being a 275-year cycle, which didn't exist before, uh, we inexplicably must subtract five and a half years to give us a 269.5-year cycle. For what reason? We don't know. Oh, there's reasons. (laughs) Chapter 20, Fomenko's Cycles of History and the Book of Daniel. Uh, when, when I got to this point in the book, I was just confused. We talk about David recycling material in all his books, but at this point, he's recycling material from within the same book. We've already fully discussed Flamenco and his dumb fucking cycles. And he just keeps bringing them up over and over again with nothing new to add. Uh, in in this section, he says that Flamenco found a 1,300-year cycle now. David then just inexplicably knocks four years off of that to give 1,296. I guess the reason he says he does that is because 25,920 is divisible by 1,296. Wow. So he doesn't even try and make the claim that, like, we do this for vibes this time. It's literally just like the other number doesn't work. Yeah. No, we need the math to work. Yeah, which it's it's— Uh, It's so frustrating. (laughs) It's just (laughs) so frustrating for him to randomly change the precise cycles when they don't line up. Uh, Chapter 21, explaining the cycles and the fourth density shift. David talks about rainbow bodies here. I had to look up what a rainbow body is. And according to Wikipedia, it's a third person perspective of someone else attaining complete knowledge. David says that there's over 160,000 cases of this happening in just bed and China alone. I should like he thinks rainbow body is when P, uh, when someone like achieves enlightenment their physical body ceases to exist and they just. Become like this magical rainbow, right? So that's what he's saying. He's saying there are 160,000 cases of people becoming rainbows in China. Well, that's a lot of rainbows. It's a ton of rainbows. Man, they got uh, they got Chinese rainbows running rampant. So for this, David cites a website that just says, "quote Sichuan Province, China, has records indicating that over 100,000 within the Catholic lineage achieved the state since its founding in the 12th century." This is exactly what we were just talking about. Just because someone says something, it does not make it so. Just saying some People can lie is the point I'm getting at here. No. Someone saying no. something is not evidence. Uh, David further attempts to support this claim by citing a website titled snowlionpub.com. <laughs> uh, let me read what was on the front page of that website when I visited it. Quote, bonus bagging online casinos by Mike Rowe. Hell yeah. This ebook is a must for gamblers who want to get an edge in online casinos. One of the best ways to increase your chances of winning online is to find a good no deposit free spins offer as you don't have to risk any of your own money. It's only upside. (laughs) Very reliable. Are are you in the hole? Don't give up. No, no. It's only this is... Well, you'll never believe it. They have a gambling system where all you do is win. They give
1: you $200 for free.
0: You never Never to lose. That's why casinos are so rich. They just give away money all day. They're they're notorious (laughs) for losing. Uh, As best I could tell, this is just a religious belief that the rainbow body thing that David is trying to claim is literal. So in the same way the Catholics claim that the Eucharist is literally the body of Christ. um, We all know if you took the Eucharist and tested it, it would not test as being composed of human flesh. At least I hope not. Although if that's the case, that'd be pretty cool too. That'd be icky. In this same way, I think David being his beautiful, naive self should probably realize that this light body is not a literal phenomenon, but rather one of religious importance. There's a paper from 2018 called Methodology and Research on the Rainbow Body Anthropological and Psychological Reflections on Death and Dying that speaks of it in the following way. Quote, For nearly 350 years, the view that there is an implacable conflict between science and religion has become a type of dogma in Western culture. As with any strongly defended position involving two oppo- opposing views drawn up for polemical purposes, this conflict has bequeathed a great deal of misunderstanding in our contemporary globalized culture. It is impossible to understand modern civilization without becoming aware of this conflict, but at the same time, the conflict is not based on firm philosophical foundations, is not universal, uh, is not universal to human discourse, and arose historically from religious conflicts that are no longer generally relevant, as a result, the conflict continues as a gossamer myth. And as this is the last chapter of the book, uh, David has started talking about the end game here. And uh, the end game is a lot of Law of One and shapes. Hell yeah. Uh, he mentions that the Law of One said a harvest would take place approximately 30 years after 1981. As you'll all notice, we are over 40 years after 1981, and that has not happened yet. Damn. But what if it did? But what if it actually did happen? <laughs> yeah what if just ignore the fact that it didn't yeah. happen and pretend that don't we're think all about in what happened. didn't happen think what could have happened He uh, David also mentions the possibility that our sun orbits a brown dwarf's uh, dwarf star uh, while there's no confirmed evidence of this at least I was able to find that as a hypothesis from scientists mm-hmm. so by David's standards that's, that's that's pretty good. That's basically true. so yeah. I'm going to give him that one as well. I do feel like this is a fitting place for this book to conclude because it so well summarizes not only David, but this entire SSP community, uh, what this community represents, which is an attempt to explain life through fantastical terms. When the universe fails to provide us these fantastical events, these individuals discover that it isn't actually a failure, but rather evidence of something even more grand and fantastical that is sure to come any time in the near future. It's basically a hope springs eternal mindset, and if left at that level, I can't really disagree with it. There's nothing wrong with being an optimist, but when an individual constructs that will of optimism on poison ground, everything that derives from it will too be poisoned. As David says on the final page of this book, with no trace of irony whatsoever, quote, volumes of scientific evidence are only useful when we are willing to look at them. I hope someday David takes his own advice. <laughs> oh, we did it. We did it. <laughs> <laughs> it. Fucking hell. We made it. Yeah, that. Uh, I'm glad that's done, and I don't have to read David anymore. There you go. So... Fuck you, David, for writing this <laughs> terrible goddamn book. Suck it, David. Yeah, that uh, it's it's really the the other times we had read his books, it was at a much more surface level, and it really does only get worse the deeper you dig. Yeah, it never gets better. No and I guess we conclude there uh, as we're recording this I actually don't know what our schedule is going to be next week because uh, Christmas is going to be coming up so yeah we'll, we'll
1: figure it out yeah
0: we'll have to figure that out episodes will will come I just don't know when or what yeah all right uh, patreon.com slash hidden we are at hidden plain I radio on Instagram you are at brand steel hidden on Instagram we're at the hidden pod on Twitter who do you
1: mom out <laughs>